The Tom Woods Show, episode 1240. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody, don't forget my friend Bob Murphy has an amazing new book where he takes all his critiques of Paul Krugman from over the years, all these devastating smashes, and organizes them in one volume according to topic. And these are topics you want to master, and Bob will help make you the master of the universe. Check it out at ContraKrugmanBook.com, and I am the narrator of the audiobook version, and you can get that for free when you check out the Audible offer at TomWoodsAudio.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. I woke up this morning, and I had an idea for—well, I guess before I went to bed, I had an idea for an episode I would do by myself this morning. And then I woke up, and I said to myself, I hate this topic. This is the last thing in the world I want to talk about. So I thought, well, that kind of leaves me a little bit in the lurch here. So on the other hand, I realized, well, hold on a minute. Wait, wait, wait. I have something I've never shared that— just a small handful of people ever heard. But given that September 15th and September in general uh, were really marking the 10th anniversary of the financial crisis from 2008, well, maybe it might be worth playing this interview I did back in 2012 with, I think it's called Wall Street for Main Street podcast. Yeah, that is what it's called. And in this episode, I mean, we do talk a little bit current events, but it's mostly drawing lessons, perhaps, or making historical corrections, corrections to the historical record from American history. And I'm not sure I've covered this particular material all that much on this podcast. So here we go. I think you'll probably like this one. And it's not too long. So it just checks all the boxes. I've been doing longer episodes lately. And I think it's getting a little clumsy and too long for people's commutes. So we got a shorter one today, and I hope you like it. Hi, everyone. This is Jason Burek of Wall Street for Main Street. Welcome back to another Wall Street for Main Street podcast interview. Today's special guest is Dr. Thomas Woods, Jr. He's a senior fellow of the Ludwig von Mises Institute and creator of Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, and he also runs the popular libertarian website, TomWoods.com. He has a bachelor's degree in history from Harvard, and his master's and PhDs are from Columbia. He's authored 11 books, which most of our listeners are probably familiar with, at least a few of them, with some of the popular New York Times bestsellers, including Rollback, Nullification, and A Politically Incorrect Guide to American History. So thank you very much today for joining us, Tom. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great. And I'm glad to finally be speaking with you. You're one of my favorite speakers to watch, um, watching on the Mises YouTube channel since I haven't been able to make it to a Mises event in person. Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks. Um, we, we have all this stuff going on in the mainstream media and the mainstream media and the Fed like to run, uh, there's certain, there are certain types of explanations for things like why we need a central bank and things like that. But, um, according to my research, there were six major financial panics from 1873 to 1907 but there were, they were all very small compared to the messes the Federal Reserve has created since. Why did the Fed use these small panics as justification for being created and for further market interventions? Well, I think they're assuming that most people won't know anything about the details of, of those events. And I think if you were to ask somebody at random, what do you know about the Panic of 1873? I don't think a whole lot of information is going to be forthcoming. So I think it's a from their point of view, it's a sensible strategy. It it, it encourages, it, it entices, um, I don't know, I guess it, it sort of summons a fear of the unknown in the minds of people. All they know is that, gosh, the word panic 
sounds pretty scary. And uh, I know that the 19th century, at least as I learned in my textbook, was a time of great instability and impoverishment and so on. I mean, that's what people more or less think. So the conclusion from this, of course, is that if you have an unstable financial system, then of course you need some kind of wise stabilizing hand, and that's the role that the Federal Reserve is supposed to play. But when you look more closely at these episodes, you actually do indeed, as you say, find that they are uh, far less severe than people would be inclined to think. In fact, for a long time, the Panic of 1873 was said to have inaugurated the so-called Long Depression of the whole that supposedly stretched through the whole 1870s, and in some of the more outlandish tellings of the tale, extended well into the 1890s. But today, you would hardly find a, an economic historian who would interpret the event that way. That now the consensus is there was a recession in 1873, but that the rest of the decade was pretty robust. There was substantial growth. The wage rates were up. The movement of the United States toward a mass consumer society was well underway in the 1870s. 1880s were even stronger. Uh, so, so, so for one thing, we have to keep these all in perspective, that these were not uh, uh, howling depressions. These were not the end of the world. Uh, and then in terms of depositor losses during the banking panics of these crises, when we look at that aspect of it, the worst in terms of depositor losses was the Panic of 1893, and there you're talking about 0.1% of GDP uh, of the losses, whereas just in the past 30 years of the central bank era, I mean, if you just go back to about, say, 1978, and then you move forward, the era that supposedly central banks brought stability and did away with panics around the world, uh, you have uh, 140 bank panics, uh, and you have uh, 20 of them worse than the worst panics of the 19th century, and some of them involving 10% of GDP depositor losses, 20% of GDP depositor losses. So well, they're not even in the same league. And then finally, uh, and there's much more that could be said, but finally, one of the contributing factors to this was some of the regulation that existed in the states in the late 19th century. It's worth noting that Canada to the north is not altogether different in its economy, and yet Canada had no bank panics whatsoever in the period from the Civil War up to World War One, They had no bank panic. So that raised the question, what what was different? And it seems to me that one relevant factor differentiating them is that in Canada you had uh, you did not have what we had in the United States, which was the unit banking laws, which made it a crime. You could not actually establish a branch of your bank. You have one bank office and that's it. So there's no branch banking within the state. And there's certainly, we didn't have branch banking across the country until 1994. And so, of course, the result of that is that every bank is extremely fragile fragile and undiversified and vulnerable to local downturns because all their loans depend on the economic health of this very, very narrow area. And so it's interesting to note that when the Great Depression occurred, uh, Milton Friedman was fond of pointing this out, in 1929 and up to 1933, there were 9,000 bank failures in the United States. And in Canada, there were zero. Very interesting points, Dr. Woods. And my research indicates that, you know, during that time from 1873 to 1907, there was barely 500 banks that failed, uh, which, you know, you mentioned the GDP number during the statistic. And then you compare that to 1929 when the Fed was starting to massively intervene along with the, the, the direct federal government besides the Federal Reserve, and you had over 9,000. And then you add in all these other panics that going forward, like the 80 savings and loan crisis, 
and what took us up to 2008. So it's just really interesting that from a historical standpoint, more people just don't study history properly or the stuff that's taught in the textbooks is not right. Because going back and reading your work and reading other people's work, it looks like from 1873 to 1907 that the prices slowly declined, the consumer prices actually slowly declined, and the standard of living increased due to free market, beneficial free market forces. That's right. And in fact, this, this is such an important issue because this is the, the reply that you get uh, either from Fed officials or from Fed propagandists or from the somewhat informed man on the street is that you had these panics in the 19th century. And what do you want to go back to that by getting rid of the Fed? Uh, you know, why are you such an ingrate given that the Fed has given us all this stability? So I want to refer people. I have a special page because I get this objection so much. I set up a special page on my site with resources answering it, including a full-fledged, full-on lecture by me, and that is tomwoods.com slash panics. Okay, great. And, and another panic that has been overblown that where free market forces were actually allowed is the Great Depression of 1920. I graduated college with a history degree and took a number of American history courses, a lot of them, and I was never taught anything about the Great Depression 1920. My teachers didn't mention it. The textbooks didn't mention it. The only thing I remember about it was the Roaring Twenties. You mentioned the post-World War I stuff, and then they talk extensively about all the corruption from the presidential administration of Warren Harding and those guys from the Teapot Dome scandal. How come that depression is left out of the textbooks then, and what lessons can be learned from that depression and what government policy took place during that one compared to the one in 29? Well, all good questions. Uh, Joseph Schumpeter, who is one of the great uh, great economists of the 20th century, said that the episode of 1920 to 21, in and of itself, proves just that one episode that the market can, in fact, lift itself out of a downturn. I think that was that was the view of of, of the great Schumpeter. And what I've done, I've written on this uh, in in my book Meltdown, and I have an, I have stuff online. If you type Depression of 1920 and Woods, you'll get something, and certainly I've got YouTube on this. But the long and the short of it is you had double-digit unemployment. You had a, a sharp increase in unemployment up to about from 4% to about 12%. You had uh, very substantial uh, GDP declines. Uh, you had deflation, uh, 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 substantially falling prices, which supposedly, according to the conventional wisdom, that's supposed to lead to uh, terrible economic consequences. But yet, by 1921, summer of 1921, the, according to the NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, it had already the economy had already begun to turn around even by then, and it wasn't until after that that Harding got around to doing anything about it, and he wasn't inclined to do anything anyway because if you read his inaugural address or you read his his uh, acceptance speech at the 1920 Republican Convention, he has a pretty good understanding of the economy and that. Look, the economy has been ginned up by all this artificial credit, and it's just going to have to shake out. And that's and there's no way we can make that process any easier or quicker or better. We just have to let it let it happen. And sure enough, the economy by the summer of 1921 was already turned around before even Harding got around to lowering tax rates, which helped. But they were able to do this even before that. So that's very significant. And the Fed didn't really do a whole lot to turn the money supply around until if you look at the St. Louis Fed, which keeps all the records, it's really not till 1922 that the money supply really turns around, and yet the recovery is already taking place by then. Now, that does indeed run counter to what some interventionists would say, and it, and 
ever since there have been Keynesian economic historians who have been completely at a loss, as I show in my writing on this, to account for how this episode was possible. Now, what what's the reason that we don't hear about this? Well, it should be obvious because it goes to show that without any massive uh, series of federal programs, the economy adjusted. Whereas a decade later, they do nothing but tinker and tinker and experiment and try this and try that and spend and borrow and whatever. And they still have double-digit unemployment all throughout the 1930s. It's still bad. You get to 1939, and the Treasury Secretary Morgenthau is, is complaining that unemployment is practically 20% again after everything that they've done. Well, no wonder you want to leave out this earlier episode. I mean, it makes makes perfect sense from that point of view. Those are completely great points. And the thing about the 1920s that you mentioned earlier when you were talking about it is that the government cut spending, they cut taxes, and this goes against everything the Keynesians stand for, and it worked. And well, that is you know, true. Let, Keynesians- let, me, let me just intervene, though, on that, because I, I, I did. You're right. I forgot to mention the most important thing was precisely what you said. They cut spending, which we're told that that would be the end of the world, and we we would descend into a black hole, never to be seen again. But they, I mean, spending went down by by uh, o- over the couple of year period by maybe maybe a half, forty percent to half. I mean, they cut spending pretty much in half. And that was accompanied by this robust recovery. Now, in terms of tax cuts, in fairness to the Keynesians, they would be okay with tax cuts as a stimulative measure. But 99 times out of 100, they prefer spending increases over tax cuts. It just, it just seems to be the case. But the point is we did both of those things and still saw this type of recovery. And they try and explain this away. But as I say, the fact is that Keynesian uh, historians have really struggled with this chapter in American history, and usually they don't dwell on it. They move immediately to the next thing. They are sort of hoping you won't notice what just happened here. But, uh, you know, I did notice that. Good points. And didn't Ben Bernanke in his book, I mean, he was supposed to be an expert on this, but he doesn't even talk about the 20s at all in his book. And then you have the Fed during the 20s where all of this gold supply, because we were on the gold exchange standard, the worldwide gold exchange standard there, where people, the banks could have in their reserves either dollars or pounds or gold. And then all these gold reserves were flowing into the U.S. And then the Fed didn't increase the money supply like the rules of the money game were supposed to be. And instead what they started contracting the money supply, even though they had all this gold that was flowing in. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, that, there's the real bills doctrine. There's a whole lot of complicating stuff in the 1920s. And some people will say that uh, the problem was that the Fed was um, so-called sterilizing the gold inflows or the th- things of this nature. But to me, the real problem with the Fed in the 1920s is the, is the Austrian diagnosis, is the diagnosis of uh, Rothbard, Murray Rothbard, in his book, America's Great Depression. Because here you have uh, conflicting accounts of what went wrong uh, by different schools of free market thought. So you have the Chicago people like Milton Friedman arguing that the problem was not anything that went on. It was not Fed policy in the 20s. The problem was that when the Depression got underway, the Fed did not move to turn the money, to fall in the money supply around because you had a lot of banks closing their doors and their fiat money disappears with them and the, the money supply is diminished. And it, according to Friedman, this leads to uh, bad economic consequences and the Fed should have taken direct steps to reverse this, and it did not do that, and that that was what led to the issue. Whereas the Rothbardian view is, is that not that it was is not that the Fed didn't do enough. I mean, both schools blame the Fed, but 
One is blaming the Fed for not intervening enough. That's not the Austrian free market view. Uh, the the uh, Rothbardian view is that the Fed actually did everything it could in the early 1930s. Uh, the discount rate was lowered to record low levels at that time. Uh, the deflation was actually not as bad as it was during the Depression of 1920, and that re- reversed itself without any Fed involvement whatsoever. But finally, uh, when you look at it uh, uh, closely, you see that the Fed, w- when you're dealing with the parts of the money supply that the Fed can control, they did try to inflate their way out. But the problem was, if everybody's pulling his money out of the banks, the Fed cannot increase the money supply unless it's through the banking system. And if people are withdrawing their money, there is no way for the Fed's money multiplier to be activated. So there's not a whole lot that could have been done. The the, the view, the Rothbard view is where did the crash come from? Like why, why was the economy apparently doing well in the 20s and then all of a sudden inexplicably you get 1929? The answer there is how Rothbard applies what's called the Austrian theory of the business cycle to this episode. And basically what he's going to say is that if you look if you look closely, the Fed is increasing the money supply at a substantial clip over 7% a year from 1924 up to the end of 1928 when Benjamin Strong dies. So all that – in fact, in 1927, the, the New York Fed president even told other central bankers, we're going to give a coup de whiskey to the stock market which indeed they did. I mean, stock prices went up substantially, and then the crash. So the Rothbardian Austrian view is that actually what you had was a classic case of artificial credit creation by the Fed, pushing interest rates lower than free market levels would would have them. And this leads to an unsustainable pattern of investment and consumption, a mismatch between uh, investment and consumption on the part of investors and the public that leads to a crash and ultimately led to the crash of 1929. And so it's not that the Fed, after the fact, didn't do enough. It's that before the fact, the Fed was doing too much, was setting the economy up for this crash through all of its interventions. Yes, and the interventions, you know, even after 29, they continue to get worse and worse. They continue to double down up through uh, basically World War II, like you said, because you had all these interventionist policies, all these government work projects, all these spending. You know, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act of 1930, which, you know, was a massive subsidy program to politically connected industries. It put up what tremendous tariffs on foreign goods and it sended uh, incorrect price signals and misallocated massive amounts of capital and resources. Yeah, I mean, we, you could list, oh, I mean, the, the, the list of interventions, whether you look at agriculture or industry from 33 to 35 with the National Industrial Recovery Act that uh, limited production and hours and uh, intervened when it came to minimum wages. I mean, we hear minimum wage today. We think of, you know, whatever, seven bucks an hour or something. But but those minimum wages of the National Industrial Recovery Act were on average 90% of the average wage in 1929. So uh, these were, these had seriously inhibiting effects on employment. And you just look through, I mean, just all the whole decade, it's, it's either one thing or another. The one thing they did, they did not attempt was some kind of a return to a, or an economy that can actually stand on its feet without constant Subsidies without constant, uh, you know, feeding it fiscal or monetary stimulus. They they didn't even give that remotely give that a try, even though that clearly had done the job in 1920. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those things bother me. The market interventions and all the other things that they don't put in the textbooks. But what bothers me probably the most is that they label President Herbert Hoover a free market guy. When if you go back and look at all of his policies, the man loved interventions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, so there you had. Uh, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, subsidies to banks and railroads. And some of these subsidies happen to be to people 
uh, or institutions whose presidents happen to belong to the Republican Party, uh, and bank presidents and stuff. Uh, then you had, uh, as you say, the Smoot-Hawley tariff. You have his high-wage policy where he's trying to encourage high nominal wages at a time when prices are falling 10-15% a year. So he's basically more or less mandating a raise for everybody during the worst depression, well, what eventually turned into the worst depression on, on record. You have uh, an intervention in agriculture that eventually led to what FDR did by actually destroying crops and things of that nature. He, he attacked uh, short sellers. He, I mean, just go on down the line. And then, of course, all the public work spending under Hoover, more in his four years than in the previous 20 and deficit spending. You had, you had, as a percentage of GDP, higher deficit spending under Hoover than you did under George W. Bush. That is not a free market guy. And he came out and he said this repeatedly, that, that the era of laissez-faire is dead, and now we need an active partnership between government and business. And he said this in his own memoirs, that thank goodness I didn't listen to the liquidationists who would have had me stand by and do nothing, but instead I engaged in the greatest act of economic reconstruction in the history of the republic. I mean, what more would you need? Yeah, and I, I mean, these guys will come up with excuses and justifications, and what really upsets me, and besides all the other stuff in the textbooks that they don't properly uh, label, is that they're always just, they always blame it on capitalism. I mean, they do more and more interventions, they create more inflation, they raise the taxes higher on the private sector, they make it more difficult for an entrepreneur like me to grow my business, and then they go and blame everything on capitalism when we don't really have capitalism anymore because I don't see firms being allowed to fail. Well, that's, that's exactly right. And, and the problem, well, one of the things I, I wrote in, in, my, uh, in my book, Meltdown, there's a, by the way, the, the chapter I'm going to refer to is actually available online for free. My uh, publisher set up a site, meltdownthebook.com. And in that chapter, it's called The Elephant in the Living Room. And I point out that up until really the first Ron Paul presidential campaign, nobody talked about the Federal Reserve, or certainly not in not to be critical of it. You, you can't talk about it for the sake of criticism. You can talk about, you could say, maybe say that it should inflate more, things like that, but you can't say that fundamentally there's something wrong with it, or fundamentally it may be a contributing factor to the booms and busts. You can't say that. And so it became the elephant in the living room. We all pretend it's not really there. And so therefore, because it's the elephant in the living room, when it does contribute to uh, boom and bust, when it does give you, for example, a housing bubble, it's the elephant in the living room you're not supposed to mention, so therefore, by default, what's left to blame other than capitalism? But if if the Fed is artificially uh, interfering in that market in various ways and pushing interest rates to lows that encourage people to uh, over to, to buy more house than they really should have, to make them feel like they're asset portfolio has grown in value. Look at, hey, look at how much my house is worth. I better go borrow against my house and go on a fancy vacation. These are not decisions that people would have made if the market had been allowed to give them the right information. Exactly. And you have Congress now, and most people aren't aware of this, Congress continues to subsidize the home builders. So these guys, after 2008, you know, after Fannie and Freddie had already failed, and all these mortgages are being moved on to Fannie and Freddie's books, and they're being covered by the U.S. taxpayer, whether they know it or not. And the home builders are being given over $500 million per quarter in tax credits to basically continue building homes because that's what the government policy has been basically since FDR. And, so, uh, the, right, and now the, 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 the Fed, uh, although it hasn't actually started doing it, if you look at its, uh, its balance sheet and stuff, it hasn't actually started, but quantitative easing three is supposed to, again, stimulate the housing market by 
by lowering uh, 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 interest rates on the long end of the yield curve by by, by lowering uh, the 30-year mortgage rate, and then that'll stimulate housing and stuff. But the, of course, we've had a lot of artificial stimula- stimulation of housing, and that was more or less the problem in the first place. And in, in fact, uh, earlier this year, there was a proposal in the Washington Post by the horrific Ezra Klein, who suggested that what we ought to do is have Ben Bernanke for one year say, look, we are going to do everything we can to push the 30-year mortgage rate down to 2.5%, and that will stimulate housing, and that, that will stimulate an overall recovery, and that was Klein's proposal. But as my friend Bob Murphy pointed out, well, if everybody knows that this is a one-year policy, for one year, you can get a mortgage for 2.5%. Anybody who's even remotely considering buying a house anytime in the next 10 years will buy it during that one year. So during that one year, you will get stimulus to housing, and you will get a spike in prices, and it'll look great. And then at the end of that year, it'll tank completely, and all you will have succeeded in doing is created another housing bubble. And incidentally, with housing prices coming down, you would think these people would be happy about that. These are people who have been calling for affordable housing Year after year, now you finally get affordable housing, and they treat it like Godzilla has returned to them, you know, from the movies. Yeah, the the Keynesians don't like lower prices. Period. What they want to do is just keep giving credit to people who really can't even pay back the credit. So you look at the student loan bubble that's been blown up, the housing bubble. I mean, the Keynesians are really just good at giving out credit and then uh, mopping up the or blaming it on capitalism, and then uh, devaluing the dollar and finding another bubble to blow up. Well, I I think you're right, and, and ultimately you, you are going to have to. Ultimately, prices are going to go where they're going to go, how, whether it's housing or anything else. And you can either let them go where they're going to go, or you can put people through more and more misery and create more confusion and divert more resources and insert more white noise into entrepreneurial calculation. I mean, those are your choices, and it seems to me let prices go where they're going to wind up anyway, even after all this stuff. Well said. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Woods, and hopefully we can have you back on again soon. Okay, great. Thank you. And that will do it for us for today. Uh, Next week, we've got a bunch of interesting things going on, but our friend Brad Berzer has a book in defense of Andrew Jackson, and I'm not a big Andrew Jackson fan, but I am a huge Brad Berzer fan, so that will result in what I hope will be a very fruitful conversation. So a lot to look forward to next week. Make sure you subscribe at tomwoods.com slash iTunes. I'll see you later. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.